we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him is the message. Why don't you uh, take your Bible, open it to Philippians 3, or if you're going to open up a device, open up there, stand to your feet if you're able with us. Philippians 3, verse 1, that I may know him. Paul writes, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we, Philippians 3, 3, are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, there's our title, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you that that word is written on our hearts as we read it, as we take it in, as we meditate on it. Our deep desire is to honor you in the teaching and the hearing and the responding to the word of God. So would you speak to us? Your servants have ears to hear. We want to hear what you would say to your bride in this hour. So give us ears to hear. Bless your people in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated, that I may know him. So the Apostle Paul, if we were to interview the man that wrote about half of the New Testament, two-thirds of the New Testament letters, and we were to say to Paul, what is your main goal in your Christian life? What is it that you are aiming at? What's the goal? I believe that we can confidently say that Paul would say that I may know him. Now, Ephesians 1.17 is a good parallel verse to this, where Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts may be open, and then the NIV version puts it this way, that we might know him better. Because all of you are thinking, well, Paul already knows him. This guy is the author of much of the, the New Testament. How could he say that I may know him? The idea is that I may know him more and in deeper ways. The Christian life if you're going to boil it down to one singular thing, it is this, that you and I would know him better. And the word know is an interesting word in the Bible, K-N-O-W. The word actually goes back to the marital relationship. It is a word that scholars say speaks to something that we would call relational intimacy. The goal of our Christian life is to get to know God better and deeper, more and more every single day. I'll give you an example from marriage. The day that you get married, for those of you who are married, 
It can be a whirlwind. There's so much going on, so much planning. You come up to the altar. You say vows to one another. You've had a courtship of whatever that time may be. From that time that the covenant is sealed, if you will, the rest of the relationship is getting to know that person better. Your motivation for marrying them can shift over the years. You can find new depths of love and devotion and knowledge of that individual. Here's the beauty of Christianity. God wants to be known by you. He knows you, but he wants you to know him better. He doesn't want you just to be a person that checks boxes, that knows Christian lingo, that can read your Bible so that you can tell somebody else, this is what I read. That's not what it's all about. What it's all about is that you and I would know him, that we would draw closer and closer to the Lord. In fact, the word worship literally means to draw near. Each time that we gather as a church to worship the Lord, we are drawing near to God. A little bit closer every time we worship. We draw near to one another, of course, but we draw near to God. Now, Paul's going to talk about some of the impediments or challenges to that notion, to draw near to God. Paul grew up in a Jewish home. He was, he's going to give us his resume in verses 5 and 6 here. He was the top, you know, the highest echelon you could imagine in terms of checking the boxes. But of all the boxes that he checked, being a Pharisee, as to the law, blameless, he did not know God. He had all the religious stuff down, but he didn't know the Lord. Now, I want to take you to a book, Jeremiah. Hold your place in Philippians. We'll come back to that in a second. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. If you you find the Psalms, go a little bit to your right. Pass up Isaiah. You're going to get to Jeremiah. I want to show you a passage of many that I could show you. We're going to look at a few here. But Jeremiah is writing in the context to a nation that has forgotten God and is coming under judgment. And they're going to go into Babylonian captivity. God's going to use the armies of Babylon to judge his people. And Jeremiah had to see all this, and he had to speak hard prophecy to his people. Jeremiah 9, the first one I want you to see is in verse 23. Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, Jeremiah 9, 23. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Keep reading. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel, here's the key, are uncircumcised where? of heart. Now they've done the outward things. They've done the religious things. They know the lingo. They know where to be on certain feast days and Sabbath days. They know the diet. They know the way to dress. They know the fasting and the tithing. But they don't know the Lord. They were uncircumcised in heart. They had the ritual down, 
but they didn't have the relationship. Some of you have come into the Christian church and you've heard about this relationship with the Lord and it's, it's a foreign thing to you. And it may be foreign because of the way that you grew up. I was recently in a Bible study with a lot of former Roman Catholics and I, I know there's a lot of wonderful uh, brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church, but I'll tell you what a lot of us ex- uh, experienced in that church and uh, what they, they agreed that they went through. So you get baptized as a child you, get, you do a first communion, and then you go through a confirmation. In Roman Catholicism, when you go through confirmation, that's when the Roman Catholic Church believes you receive the Holy Spirit. Once you receive the Holy Spirit, your family often feels that you're good. Or you're signed, sealed, delivered, he's yours. And for a lot of them, they then said that the family stopped going to church except for major holidays. And the idea was the boxes were checked. This kid's now good because he's gone through the exercise. Now, I'm not saying that the exercise couldn't lead you to the Lord. For many people, perhaps, on that confirmation day, they truly did receive the Holy Spirit and came to the Lord. I don't know for sure. But I'm saying that there's a danger in thinking that just by checking the boxes of doing the rituals, if you will, that leads you into right standing with God. And that is what Paul ran into as a first century Jew. And that's what many of us run into perhaps as contemporary people in churches. If you go back to the early part of the chapter in chapter 9 of Jeremiah, look at verse 3. He says, They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. Sound familiar? For they proceed from evil to evil, and here's the issue. They do not know me, declares the Lord. Go down to verse 6, Jeremiah 9. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and assay them. For what else can I do? It's almost like the Lord's throwing up his hands. Because of the daughter of my people. They refuse to know me. So God says judgment is coming to my people. Now, in Jeremiah 22, I want to give you a little bit of good news before we move back to Philippians chapter 3. Go up to Jeremiah 22. One more hard one, and then I'll give you a little bit of good news. The Lord addresses Shulam, son of Josiah, king of Judah, and he says these words in Jeremiah 22, 15. Do you become a king because you are competing in cedar? 22, 15. Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He pled the cause of the afflicted and the needy. Then it was well with him, or it was well. Is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your own dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on practicing oppression and extortion. Now here's the problem with the nation Flip over to Jeremiah 24, and here's what God says he's ultimately going to do after he disciplines the people. He says in Jeremiah 24, 6, he's addressing the captives who will return from Babylon after 70 years. He says, I will set 24, 6, my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart, what your Bible say, to know me. For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. For they will return to me with 
their whole heart. Flip over to Jeremiah 31, where God begins to lay out the new covenant that he will make with the house of Israel. And he's talking about now a heart change. That is an inner change instead of an outward ritual. He says in Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, 31, 31, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now when Jesus came, and he, if you turn back to Philippians 3, and he was praying in the upper room the night before he was crucified, he said these famous words, John 17, 3, he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what it means to have eternal life, that you may know God. Can I ask you at the outset of this message, do you know God I was witnessing to a, a friend I played racquetball with and we were having spiritual conversations back and forth. And one day I said to him, I know the Lord and the Lord knows me. And he said, Michael, you're nuts. What do you mean you know God and God knows you? And he didn't understand what I was saying. But if you're a Christian, this is the reality of who you are. You know the Lord and the Lord knows you. The Lord bears witness to this by giving us his Holy Spirit, but he also bears witness to it by the revelation that we have in Scripture. And this is the truth of what it means to be a believer. It's to know God. Now, there are things that obviously challenge us in that endeavor. What are those things? Well, if you grew up like me, they might be a temptation to check boxes and think, that's what puts me in good standing with God. If I did these certain things on this given day, there are people in movements today, I won't name them, but I think you're familiar with them, that are told, if you do this many good things, then this is what will happen to you. This will secure your future. This will accomplish this or that. But the truth of Scripture is that that is all irrelevant. If you don't know the Lord, you are not saved no matter how many good things you do. I'll give you an example. If I were to take you to a swimming pool after this service and dunk you in water a thousand times and you had not been baptized in your heart, you had not had a heart change, that outward action of going down under the water and coming back up again is absolutely meaningless. Now, if you have been changed on the inside or baptized on the inside, then that day of baptism means everything. Amen? Because it becomes a true sign of what's happened to you on the inside. The ritual cannot do it. The ritual simply should be a testimony to the reality of the heart. You take circumcision of the heart instead of the outward circumcision or, circumcision or baptism, if you will. And I use the idea of the baptism of the heart. And so Paul begins these uh, famous words in chapter 3, Philippians, with 
verse 1 with finally. Uh, this is what preachers often say. And my final point is this. And most of you are like, I don't believe it. He's lied before. <laughs> right from that hunk of wood. Well, the word finally doesn't mean finally. And all of you are like, yeah, it's just exactly what I expected. He's a preacher. There's going to be a fourth chapter as well. So if Paul did it, I can do it too. But the idea finally is that he's kind of switching points here. And he's given a lot of encouragement. And now he says, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. This, is a, this has been a letter about joy, and we need to have joy. And then he says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it's a safeguard for you. Now, if you're taking notes, this is an important point. Joy will keep you spiritually healthy. Safeguards will keep you spiritually protected. Amen? I need joy in my life, and the joy of the Lord is my strength. And I love that. But you also need to build safeguards into your Christian life. What do you need to build safeguards against? Paul will lay it out. He will talk about false teaching and false teachers. And in, the, in verses 2 and 3, I believe, or as, at least in verse 2, he uses the word beware in our English versions, at least the New American Standard, three times. Beware, beware, beware. In the Greek text, they're all words that start with the kappa or the K in Greek. And it's a way to write to kind of burn it into the minds of the listener. You say, what do I need to be aware of? What is Paul warning against in a letter of joy? Notice what he says. First, beware of the dogs. Now, all of you are saying, wait a minute, Pastor Michael. You said you were a dog lover. You said all dogs are believers. <laughs> I believe that. I believe most dogs are more spiritual than all of us. Can I get a witness? But in the first century, dogs were largely not domesticated. They ran around the Roman world as basically scavengers, ate garbage. You get the point. They were kind of a gross, detestable kind of animal. And the Orthodox Jews, or the very religious people of the day, looked down on Gentiles and called Gentiles, non-Jewish people, dogs. And so when Paul addresses these proud Pharisees who don't know the Lord, but look down on everybody else, he flips around the term and uses it against them. And basically says, the Gentile believers aren't the dogs. You are. This is where the song came from, Who Let the Dogs Out? You guys realize that? And if you've ever seen the sign on a backyard fence, Beware of Dogs, Paul gets a kickback every time one of those signs are sold. It all originates from the Bible. Right? Who are these dogs? And why does Paul use this metaphor to drive the point home? Well, these dogs are also described as evil workers or evildoers if you have an ESV. They, what they're teaching brings harm. It comes with a bite to go with the metaphor. Beware of these evil workers. Beware of these dogs. And then he gets down to the point. This is what they propagate. This is their doctrine. Beware of the false circumcision. Literally, you could render this. Look out for those who want to mutilate your flesh. 
Now, in the early church, in the book of Acts, a debate arose. It was the first council in the Jerusalem church. And what happened was there were Gentile believers coming to the Lord. And some of the Jewish believers said, no, these people need to be circumcised and keep the laws of Moses to be saved. And so a big debate ensued. If you've ever studied the chapter before, you know that Peter stood up and James stood up. And Peter said, look, I went into the Gentile house of Cornelius and these people received the Holy Spirit on the basis of faith. Why would we try to add something to them that didn't benefit us? Why would we force them to eat our kosher diet? Or to get the outward right or act of circumcision when they are already saved on the basis of faith. Why would we do that? And so the point is this. We don't need to add to the Gentiles something that is very much Jewish. And so they determined that they wouldn't add any extra things to the Gentiles. They would simply tell them to live a pure life. But, they, but the, the big issue is that you are saved by grace through faith plus nothing. If you have someone come along and tell you, oh, that Bible or that church that told you, you simply trust in the Lord and that's good for salvation. Oh, no, 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 no. Apparently you didn't read the small print, brother, sister. And sometimes they come along and they're at the mall and they say, oh, you got baptized in your church? Oh, their baptism is not good. You need to be baptized in our baptismal by our uh, leader according to our formula or you're not saved. See, there are modern faces of this and it's all the same. The packaging can look a little different, but here's the point. If you are a believer today, it is simply on the basis of trusting in the finished work of Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works, not by works, so that no one can boast in God's presence. It is on the basis of God's grace, and you receive it through faith. Amen? Amen. This is the gospel. And Paul lived so much of his life at the top of the game. He was... Uh, a man who had it all going on in terms of the religious world, and yet he was lost. You say, well, what is the solution, Pastor Michael? If this is the warning, what should a true Christian life look like? Look at verse 3, Philippians 3. For we are the true circumcision, by contrast to the false, who do through th three things, if you're taking notes, who worship in the Spirit of God. Worship has the idea of serving or drawing near. Glory in Christ Jesus. He alone is our salvation. And then a negative, two positives and a negative. We worship in the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. And we put how much confidence in the flesh? Zero. Now this is a different type of battle with the flesh. You've all heard of the battle of the flesh and the Spirit. And sometimes we're tempted to do things we ought not do as believers. And that's one primary battle. But there's another battle with the flesh. And it's this. It's a religious battle. It's this temptation to rely on performance to think that that makes me good with God. And there is nothing wrong with serving God with the best that you have. You should. 
But if you're simply checking boxes and you think, well, if I did this, this, and this today, then he loves me. And if I didn't, then he loves me not. He loves me. He loves me a lot. He loves me. You're going to be on this constant roller coaster, which is not what God wants for you. On your worst day, he loves you. And on your best day, he loves you. You are in a covenant, a new covenant with God. Amen? And so we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We glory in Christ Jesus and we put zero confidence in the flesh. This is the path for believers. We worship the Lord. We draw near to him. We glory in the cross and we put zero confidence in the power of our flesh. Jesus put it this way. Apart from me, you can do zero. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, someone might say, well, Paul, where do you get such authority? On what basis might you say such things? Look at verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Here's my resume if you want to compare. I was circumcised the eighth day, verse 5. Of the right nation, the nation of Israel, the chosen ones. I'm of the right tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, the uh, tribe that kings came from. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is, I had a Hebrew mom and a Hebrew dad, pure stock. As to the law, I hit the highest echelon of religious service or position of Pharisee. If you want to know about my passion or zeal, I was so passionate, I persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And if you want to know about the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. I showed up at the right days with the right clothing. I tithed of mint and cum and I fasted twice a week. I did my prayers. I was at the morning and the evening offerings. I was at the festivals. I did it all right. I was so passionate about God and his kingdom that I tried to stamp out what I believed to be a false kingdom. That is the kingdom of Christ until I was confronted on the road to Damascus and I saw a bright light. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He didn't know the Lord. Now, if you took your resume and compared it to Paul's, how would you be doing? When it comes to the outward working of the law, would you be found blameless? Be honest. We'll ask people who live with you after this. (laughs) Paul was an amazing man in terms of a religious man. Ritual and passion for who he, who he was and what he did, second to none. But all of it was a waste. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, seven, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The word loss there has the idea of a detriment or the idea of tossing unneeded cargo off of a ship because it was weighing it down. Paul's spiritual spreadsheet shifted when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. And everything that he had in the positive category, this side of the ledger, he put into the negative category. Every box that he checked, every work that he did, every outward act of righteousness for the sake of the law and impressing people, he put it from the gain category into the loss category. Every trophy by human endeavor was a loss. Can you imagine how devastated Paul must have been 
when he realized that everything that he had done for religious reasons was actually detrimental to him knowing God. Wow. I mean, that is an amazing revelation. And Paul says they meant nothing. In fact, they're now a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, look at verse 8. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value. This is the superiority, the uh, uh, super abundance. It's the, this idea of the top of the top, of the surpassing value of, here's our key word, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. You could translate garbage or what could be thrown to the dogs I count them all rubbish or garbage in order that I may gain Christ. Some of us are going to have to lose all of that stuff to truly know Jesus Christ. We're going to have to chuck a lot of the, and I'm going to put this in quotes, religious baggage that we carried in to a church or the hearing of the gospel. Because so many of you are caught in this cycle where you measure everything by how, how well you performed. Some of you think that you're saved on one day and lost the next, and you go back and forth and up and down, and that's not what God has for you. The Lord wants you to understand that the ultimate gain is to know him. Everything else can be tossed away. Now, all that you do for Christ, of course, has great benefit, but here's what Paul says, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. And that was Paul's problem. He was trying to do a righteousness of his own derived from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, notice, on the basis of faith. The gospel is simply this. In order to know God, a foreign righteousness must come into your life. It's not a righteousness that you can produce because our righteousness is, is as of filthy rags before the Lord. All of our good works without this relationship really mean nothing. They're not going to get anybody in on that day. Nobody's going to be comparing resumes at the pearly gates. What's going to get us in is whether we're in Christ and have a righteousness which comes to us outside of ourselves. What is this righteousness, you ask? This is Christ's righteousness. Christ fulfilled all righteousness when he came to the planet. He fulfilled the law. He got baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And his perfect life, substitutionary death, and triumphant resurrection come to any person, are credited to any account when you put your trust in the finished work of Christ. And here's what happens. When Christ died on the cross, all of your sin went to him and he bore the punishment. He was treated as though he committed all of our sins. And when you receive Jesus as Lord, all of his righteousness comes to your account by faith. This is what Genesis 15, 6 teaches. Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Amen? So that when the Lord looks at you today, my brother, my sister, he sees you wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. That's who you are. 
And that's the only way you get in. Because if you fail in one point of the law, James 2.10, you're guilty of all of it. Because the essence of the law is to love God with everything I am and love my neighbor as myself. And I have woefully failed more times than I'd like to tell you from up here on those two things. And those are the essence of the law. But what God has done in the gospel is allowed Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless son of God, the lamb without spot or blemish, to take my spot, to do what I could not do, to take my punishment, and in him I find a righteousness which is perfect. Not only am I a forgiven man, but I have the righteousness of Christ credited to my account simply by faith. Oh, glory to God. Amen? Good time for a praise the Lord and an amen. This is the good news of the gospel. And it's not easy believism and it's not cheap faith. It, is, it cost him everything. And I will tell you this, in knowing him, it's going to cost you as well. Because when Paul gets to the crescendo of the text, he says these words, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. If you're taking notes, there's three things there that I may know him. Then he talks about the power and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, I love the idea of power. I love how it flows out of my mouth. Power. Power. Right? I love when Jesus hushed the waves of the sea. Quiet! And the sea went, okay. When he said to demons, be quiet! And the demon was like, love it. Power! Lazarus! Come forth out of the tomb. And out came Lazarus. Power! Unmitigated power! Love it. I like part A of Philippians 3.10. We preachers, we, we're, we're famous for this. We, we can give part A of verses. And if I could stop there right today with the power, it would, it would feel good. But there's a part B to the verse. Do you see what it is? It's the power of his resurrection. And what? The fellowship of his sufferings. Now that part, I want you to hear this very, very well. You will never know the power of the resurrection without the fellowship of his sufferings. You never will know it. Because you are not going to have Sunday morning without Friday. You ain't going to get a resurrection without a crucifixion. There is no resurrection without the suffering. And Paul has this thorn in his flesh. And three times he says, Lord, remove it, remove it, remove it. Many of us have been there. Lord, take this away. Why do you allow this to linger in my life? And the Lord's response, my grace is sufficient. My power is perfected in weakness. What? That's so contra the world. But then Paul starts rejoicing about his weaknesses. Why? Think about this. The title that we may know him, the point of the Christian life that we may know him, the word, the fellowship 
of his sufferings. What does the word fellowship mean, brethren? It means closeness. It means to know someone well. And what Paul is saying is the way that I've gotten to know my Lord well is through suffering. The way I've experienced the power of the resurrection is through the fellowship of the sufferings. Oh, it's not my favorite thing to talk about, I'll tell you. But here it is, right before us. We want to know you, Lord, but would you keep us, you know, kind of gliding with some smooth sailing? (laughs) And the Lord's like, well, how deep do you want to go? Do you want to know me? Do you want a fellowship with me? Then I'm going to take you to some depths that you may not have known before, but you're going to find me there. You're going to find me when the thorn hasn't gone away and you've prayed more than three times. You're going to find me when you feel like that person turned their back on you and you can't make sense of it. You're going to find me in the disappointments of life, but you're also going to find my power as you yield to me and are conformed into my image that I may know him. I want to know the power, and yes, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And then Paul gives these words, that I may attain, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Some of you are saying, has Paul gone back to works here? Is he saying that I've got to experience the fellowship of his sufferings to attain to the resurrection? No, Paul had no doubt about him being raised. He knew where he was going. He knew what was going to happen. There's a little technical language in the Greek here, but here's basically what I believe Paul is saying. He's saying, look, as I live my life, I want to get to such a point in my walk here on the earth that my life is so filled with fellowship with knowing him and the power of his resurrection that my life gets elevated to such a place that other spiritually dead people around me will see the power of Christ in my life, that I will attain to such a point in my walk that I will bear witness to the fellowship and the power of Christ. Amen? Is that what you want? There's a cost to that. And this is the part of the Christian life where we get into the idea of walking with the Lord, taking up our cross and following him and then experiencing the resurrection power. Bow your heart with me. Father, thank you so much for your living word. Thank you for the people of God. Lord, we know that there are many times in our lives when we experience fellowship in unexpected places with our king, depths that you knew, depths that you take us And I don't understand all of it, Lord, but I do understand that it does teach me dependence and it gives me an angle of a view of the power of God that is unique and beautiful. Lord, there are many times when you lift our burdens and I don't want your people for a moment to think that you don't do that because you do. Oftentimes we experience seasons where We fellowship with you in suffering and seasons of great blessing and power. You are sovereign over each of them, Lord. Would you keep your head and heart bowed for a moment and let the word of God 
just sink down into your soul, and I want to just ask you a couple questions. One, do you know him? If everything was stripped away in this place at this moment, and it was you and God, what would his assessment be? This is my child. I know him, her, and he, she knows me. It's a beautiful place to be. And I would encourage you to just say, Lord, I want to know you better this week. When I open my Bible, that's going to be my aim, to know you better, to get closer, to seek your face. Maybe your response would be, I don't know if I know him. I, I've been checking boxes. I've been, I got the lingo and I know what to say, but I don't know where I'm at. Then the Bible says, make your calling an election sure. Settle it today. Come to the Lord. Come to him just as you are. Repent of your sin. Tell him you believe in the gospel. My last address to your heart is to prodigals who you know you've wandered way away from home. And you could say, yeah, I know him, but man, it's nowhere near what it was before. Lord, we know that each one of us could say every day we could repent and return to our first love. So right now, I'm going to do that. I pray collectively we will do that, that we repent of overconfidence in the flesh. We repent of ritual instead of relationship. We just get back to knowing you better and making you known. Thank you, Father. Would you minister to your people? Would you bless them? Would you encourage them? Would you bear their burdens and strengthen them for the week ahead? Would you heal those who are crying out right now? Healing of hearts and broken places. You know what they are, Father. Would you allow your Holy Spirit to just wash over us, Lord? Renew the joy of your salvation in us, Lord, and a right spirit in us. And this week, I pray that we'll just get to know you a little bit better each and every day.